if you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. And I know I say this, but I really, really want to encourage you today, whether it's a Bible you brought with you in your hand or on your phone, if you don't have one, there are Bibles both <clears throat> at both of the uh, little tables in the back where the offering boxes are, and, uh, because today most of the text is going to be through chapters 21 and 22, and I'm not going to put all of those up on the screen, they just, they're here in your Bible, and uh, so as we refer to these so that you see it for yourself and not just hear it, uh, really uh, encourage you, if you need to, to feel free to grab many of those Bibles that are sitting that back there and to use those. <clears throat> Let's begin reading in Revelation chapter 21 in verse 9. Yes. Oh. No, you know what? I don't know. Should, uh, uh, oh, there's Tom. He's looking for you. And I suppose we shouldn't leave him hanging. All right. At this time, children may be dismissed for children's church. All right, you can go. I know. I see some of you really waiting. That's good. I'm glad that you're excited about that. Thank you. Uh, I I. I I do tell people, I know John, I think I heard John, but there may have been others, but I tell people, listen, you've got to remind me of these things. I get, I'm so focused, I forget all about that. That is, I'm glad that we have it back for them to be able to be ministered in that way. All right, Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Verse 9, and then we'll be <clears throat> skipping some other places, but we're just going to go right on through verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plates came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit, the mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of the various precious jewels, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and twelve angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it is wide. He measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia. In length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by the man's measurement which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold and pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, and sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, and the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, and eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see the temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will the gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. 
On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would speak. Even more than that, we need you, Holy Spirit, to help us to hear. To hear you. Not just to hear in a sense of trying to understand what's all being said here. But to understand what you are trying to say to us. That goes beyond any information to a transformation that you want to see happen in us. Help us to see today. Even in relation to talking about heaven, of where we need to be made new and different in our actions or attitudes, wherever it may be, moving us even now. Anoint me to speak by your power, Holy Spirit, anoint us to hear by your power as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I know some of you have been waiting. You'll see uh, today the title is a little different than maybe what you saw earlier, and that's just that we're going to part three, and this is the last one. But some of you have been waiting on something, especially since it's part three and uh, the message, the title's on the screen there. Uh, So I just want to encourage you to feel free to sing along. I can show you the world Shining, shimmering, splendid Tell me people when did... Oh, wait, didn't you know the words? You know, remember that, that... I can open your eyes Take you wonder by wonder Okay, everybody all together A whole new world, a new fantastic point of view. That's as far as I'm going to go because Disney just doesn't go with heaven. Uh, You know, but what does is, you know, I've been using that phrase each of this is part three. It is about a whole new world. Revelation 21, verse 1, talks about a new heaven and new earth. We talked about how it also says the old heaven and old earth will be gone. There will be no more in a sense that what a relief to be in a place that we talked about last week that will be free free forever from the negative, set free from all of that. But the hope for heaven is not just that it is a place of no more. It is about being a place of so much more. It's not what God's gotten rid of, but what God has made new. And he tells us in verse 5, Behold, I make everything new. Everything. A whole new world. And what better way to finish up our end times series than ending up in heaven. So that we can hold on to, and really that's the, the message today, in many ways, is for us to be able to hold on to that hope of a heaven that is so much more. You know, we we can know this in our head, but for some reason we are not holding on to it in our heart. The hope of a heaven that is so much more. This morning we're just going to take a tour of heaven, so to speak, uh, of what eternity will be, and, and we're going to grab a hold, first of all, of in, and embrace the wonder of a whole new world. To embrace the wonder of a whole new world, new heaven, new earth. By the way, it's not a new idea. It was briefly mentioned all the way back in Isaiah 66. Even Jesus in John chapter 14 says he goes to prepare a place for us. Not some figurative, spiritual thing, a literal, actual place. Not tomorrow land, not a fantasy land. And unfortunately, many of our views about heaven have been influenced by so many things other than the word of God. 
there are these nice sentimental pictures that we have of what heaven's going to be like. Like uh, for some, it's sitting on a cloud and playing a harp in an angel garb. That's not going to happen. We're not going to be doing that. In fact, let's be clear. When we die, we do not become angels. We are humans created by God. Angels are created by God. Two separate different creations. But heaven is not some cloud floating in space. Heaven is a place. A whole new world of so much more. And we look at what Revelation tells us. Let's get back into what we read just a little bit ago. Look at verse 9. Of the seven angels that had the seven bowls full of the last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and his brilliance was like that of the precious jewel, like jasper clear as crystal. One of the things that will be so much more is that holy city of New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that we read, and we read in verse 2 about this as well. And the measurements that are given to us here in, uh, in verse 15, the angel talked with me in measuring rod of gold, the measure that city gates and its walls that laid out on a square as long as it is wide. And he measured the city with a rod found to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. And he measured its wall, and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. It's it's a picture of of a place that is that is huge, in a sense, almost seems almost cube like, or not two dimensional, I guess, more three dimensional. As this this city comes out, as we think about it that whole measurement thing and how big it is, let's keep in mind that there is nothing created or that ever will be created that will contain God. We can talk about where God dwells, where His presence rests, but God is infinite, not finite, and cannot be contained in some space. And maybe we have questions about the size of the city when if you start measuring that out and you're thinking, well, you know, they got this scene in Revelation 7 uh, where it talks about a great multitude worshiping God, a, a great multitude so great that no one could count it. But no matter what size the city would be, don't forget there is a new heaven and new earth, all of it coming down. It's not just this city. And it seems a little ironic, I think, uh, Maybe we've not thought about it this way, but heaven is talked about in a sense then as kind of a big metro area city. I mean, is this right? I mean, it's it's the the largest is large, you know, as many metro areas. And so heaven is kind of like this big metro area city. But it's a little ironic, especially in our days when those who talk about having a sense of heaven uh, a sense of heaven is being out in the country, wide open, right? Where there's lots of land and few people. That's our idea of heaven. Yeah, there's people who are going to shout amen, but that's probably not the place for it. Uh, but think about it. The point of heaven is not about living in isolation with you and God. But it's about living with and regularly interacting with other believers in worship to our Lord that we have in common, who has made us all blood brothers and sisters. His plan, not just for eternity, but for right now, why God is why God created, is why Jesus bought with his own blood the church, us together. Not a life alone with God out someplace, but together. Even as you think about that symbolized and that coming together as a city. But let's look even closer at that city. Let's go to the streets. Since many of the times, I think that's one of the things most referenced about heaven that people talk about, right? And sing about, you know, it's about the streets of gold. 
uh, you know, those streets of gold. And yet what, what is also kind of interesting is that it's only mentioned right here in verse 21. The 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like transparent glass. For as much as we talk about this, walking on the streets of gold and thinking about, singing about it, it's only half a verse that it talks about. That's what we've grabbed a hold of. And think about it. It's made of pure gold, transparent gold, not gold like it's found here on earth that we have right now. And even as you think about gold, gold we consider valuable. The gold standard of our money, that's what it's based on. And yet our, our wealthy, over-the-top opulence will be under our feet as pavement. The best we've got on earth, God is going to use to pave the streets with. Which should get us thinking about, first of all, what is it we're chasing after? Why is it so many people are trying to possess here that which in heaven is not going to have any meaning? If gold is seen as the best that we've got here on earth and it's relegated to the streets, can you even imagine what the rest of heaven will look like? If our best of what we think about and what really seems amazing is gold. Is, what, what is the rest of heaven going to look like? A whole new world. In fact, the walls and the gates, look at verse 12. In verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations on them were the names of the 12 apostles. Jump down to verse 18 as we're talking about the walls. And the wall was made of jasper, the city of pure gold, as, a pre- as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And it goes on to list all of those different precious stones. And all of that the, between the, the costly gemstones and the and the foundations, all of those things. We just don't have time to get into the meaning of all those specifically. But to really just think through uh, the various pictures and words uh, that we have heard about heaven, even the songs that we've sung about, I already mentioned the, the streets of gold. What's something else we hear a lot about? The pearly gates of heaven, Right? We, we, it's everywhere, you, you know, the songs and everything, you know, pictures. But how much of what we think about and talk about the pearly gates of heaven are biblical and how much is just beyond? And what we'll see is it's really some, some not. For example, first off, when we think about those gates, uh, those pearly gates, gates of heaven and what's talked about and that's in verse 21 the 12 gates were made were 12 pearls each gate made of a single pearl the great street and then it talks about the street first of all the gates are made of pearl not pearls plural but of a single pearl that's supernatural that's a whole new world to understand it's going to be a whole new world. The wonder of it. Can we just imagine and, and, and hold out the hope of what that's going to be? It's supernatural right there. You know, we don't think, even for ourselves, we don't think of our naturally occurring pearls as something that's really valuable. But remember, Jesus talked about the parable of the pearl, not the diamond of great price, but the pearl of great price in Matthew chapter 13, where the person sold everything to get it. Ultimately, the pearl representing Jesus, salvation, eternal life with him. When we talk about the pearly gates, and you hear people talking about them, oftentimes the picture is that this is the the one entry point into heaven. You know, where you line up like a ticket booth. And and it's manned by St. Peter before you can get in the gates. 
I mean, how many have heard this stuff, right? I mean, we've heard, you know, to get to the gates and St. Peter's there and whether you're going to get in or not based on the questions that you answer, whether you get it right, really it's more about whether your name is found in the book of life and then whether you get to get allowed in the gate to heaven. But the Bible doesn't have that picture. We don't read about that picture. In fact, there's not one gate. There's 12 I mean, it's just the things that we talk of. There are 12 gates inscribed with the 12 names of the 12 tribes of Israel, not to mention the foundations with the 12 disciples of the church seeing both the old and the new here. And another thing, those gates, they're not closed. Like, you know, you walk up to it, it's closed, but oh, let me let you in. No, the gates are always open. Verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. It is so safe. The gates are left open. There's no more war. There's no more strife. There's no more enemies. There's no reason to close the gates. It will be a place of eternal peace. Nonetheless, there is nothing getting in that does not belong in, because while those gates are open, they each have an angel guarding them. You may recall in Genesis chapter 3, where after mankind's fall, to keep them out of the garden, God set an angel with a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back specifically to the tree of life. That previously, that tree of life was not off limits. But all that changed when Adam and Eve sinned and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now we'll get back to that tree in a moment. But let's just think through this. Just like nothing is getting into the garden was going to get into the garden that didn't belong there, so too nothing's going to get into heaven that does not belong. That's what it's about. I mean, if Second Peter chapter three verse thirteen. But in keeping with His promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Only that which is righteous. And not any, and we recognize that we have no righteousness of our own, that our righteousness are but filthy rags, but it is through the blood of Jesus that makes us righteous. The only way we're getting in are only those names who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not everyone is going to heaven. And unfortunately, the road seems very wide to hell. It's unlikely that anyone is going to be escaping out of hell and trying to break into heaven, since at the judgment, everyone else was thrown into the lake of fire. As much as we talk about the reality of heaven, may we recognize that the Bible talks just as much about the reality of hell. In fact, right here in Revelation 21, verse 8, go back to verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And then in chapter 22, look at verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes that may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Those who get to go in the gates and city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So let's get to that tree of life then. As it said there in, in verse 14, the tree of life is how and why, you know, the tree of life, let's even go back to where it was pictured in the Garden of Eden. And we see everything comes full circle. That what was lost in the beginning is restored in the end, so to speak, in the beginning of eternity. Revelation here, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. As we think about that river, and a couple moments ago, I just said that God took away access to that tree before you get to the river. God took away access to that tree of life because Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the tree of knowledge. Now, if we really understand all that was going on, 
Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Remember that the penalty of sin is death, not eternal life, not something from the tree of life. The penalty of sin is death. And in that moment, Adam and Eve lost eternal life as God shut them out, not just from the garden, but he shut them out from the tree of life in that garden. And we may not grasp that completely why. I mean, we think, well, why would he do that? Let's think about that. Keeping them from the tree of life was out of God's love for them. Not because he was just like, well, forget you. You didn't listen to me, so you, get, you lose it all. No. Because it seems that if they would have eaten from the tree of life, they could have lived forever. You say, well, that's a good thing. Is it? Forever they would have lived under and with the curse of sin and the hopelessness that comes with that, yet never dying. I mean, we think about our life, and and many people want to keep living a little longer than we do, but would you want to live like this in the curse of sin, not only in your own life, but in all that is cursed around us forever and ever and ever and ever? God has something planned that is so much more than that. And he kept them away from that tree of life. But it comes full circle because now in eternity, in that new heaven, new earth, in that whole new world is the tree of life. And the curse is no more. Also is that river that we just read about in chapter 22, verse 1 and 2. A whole new world description of so much more includes a river in the middle of it all, pure, ever-flowing, never-ending life, coming directly from God to His people. Jesus talked to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 about drinking from the water of life and that she would never thirst again. Now some may question whether this river is literal, is literally going to be there, but why not? Why can't it be there? Even if, Why can't there be a literal, beautiful river there? Even if there is a beautiful symbolism of Jesus being the water of life. Speaking of water, it, I, there's something I find interesting that maybe some of us have missed. You know, in chapter, 20, in chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Most of us got that, but did you read the next part? And there was no longer any sea. No more. One of the things no more is a sea. And we're like, some people are like, what? What? No. Oh, see, in, 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 in the new heaven, there's not, there's not like the ocean. Like, I like the oceans, you know. You know, people say, well, the oceans are beautiful, man. You know, it's peaceful. It's so cool. If for some reason, is there like no sea? Well, some would see the sea as that which is treacherous and dangerous. Would explain it by saying it's just... At one time, the world was destroyed by water. And so, uh, yeah, you know, even and you look in the Bible, many bad things come out of the sea, so to speak. Others would say the oceans will not be in the new heaven and new earth because there shouldn't be anything that separates us one from another in heaven. That because the oceans separate us and it wouldn't be separating. And we've talked in the past that there are those who read things purely symbolically, not necessarily literally in what takes place. And there are those who would say, you know, this sea, that no more sea is just figurative, but yet then they take the talk of the river as literal. So which is it? I mean, it's the same kind of thing. In fact, for all that matters, chapter uh, in verse 1 that I just read about no longer any sea, you just read down there to verse 4 and it says no longer there's going to be any death, no, no more uh, crying, no more, you know, is that just figurative too? We take it literal. And so while it's difficult for us to grasp, do we have any other reason not to take it literal other than, you know, maybe they just meant the Mediterranean Sea. 
and not all the oceans. You know, technically the word that's used there, sea, is not really just sea. It's about any body of water. Think about it in the Bible. How many of us have heard of the Sea of Galilee? And we know that's not a sea. That's a lake, right? He's talking about, is it any body of water except for the river? And it's too hard to know. There's too much speculation, not clear interpretation of what this is. But could it be that it will be a whole new world? That the new earth will not look anything like the old earth? Including it being covered by a majority of water. Will there be new things? Even when you think about this whole thing, like, like, like the weather. Perhaps like in the Garden of Eden before the fall, uh, where we would imagine a perfect temperature. You know, there were no thermostat wars in the Garden of Eden before sin. It, it, it's just, it was perfect. And, and, and maybe as we think about it, it sounds like there was, there was definitely no rain before the fall. And even possibly no rain before Noah built his whole ark. So none of that kind of happened and, and, and that the, the waters were above. And uh, creating the, 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 the waters of firmament above. Creating that perfect atmosphere and environment. Is that what will happen in the new Eden, so to speak? The new heaven and new earth? I know when we get down to it, there are some that just think, just no longer any sea or a body of water. I did. I don't really. I don't like that. I, I don't. That, so that can't be what it means. You know what? There are a lot of people who don't like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter twenty-two about the fact that there is no marriage in heaven and all that that deals with. But nonetheless, that's a fact, Jack and Jill. Just letting you know. Whatever happens, whatever is going to be. No more sea, no more oceans. Whatever it is, we will not be disappointed in the new heaven and earth. I think back to Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Whatever God creates in the new heaven and new earth, we won't be thinking about the old, but just embracing the wonder of the whole new world. That he's created for us. Well, we've got to go beyond there. We've got to embrace the wonder of a whole new way. A whole new way of life in so many different uh, ways of thinking. As we think about there's, there's things that are no more and so much more. Look at Revelation 21 verse 23. In verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. No night. The light's on all the time. It's the glory of God. Can you imagine the amazing brilliance, the amazing blessing of an eternal light? Not just of God, but that is God. The comfort, the assurance. We often see light as something that's good, that we want to have. And darkness as something in a number of ways that's not so good. And we could talk about how differently we will live. Think about how new, how much, how different we, the way that we will have to live in a world where there is no night. It's just light all the time. Will we lose our cycle of night and day? That really is in many, how, many ways how we measure time. Will the earth still revolve around the sun, S-U-N? Or will there not be an S-U-N? Instead, the whole new world will revolve around the S-O-N. What will take place? Will there be a sense of time in heaven, that resource that so many of us say we never seem to have enough of? Will it even matter in eternity that is a forever tomorrow? Yes, there are places like in Revelation 8 that talks about a half hour of silence in heaven. But is that coming from heaven's perspective or from John's perspective and how to describe it? Is that something that it happened before the whole new earth and heaven 
be, even began. Not to mention, as we think about the whole concept of time and eternity, that the presence of God exists eternally apart from time. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. We're going to be in His presence, whatever it is. The whole new world that awaits us will surely involve a whole new way of living our life than why we're living now. And thinking of time, uh, it's not directly related, but it is. We're, we've come to the end of the, the time of talking about end times 101, and I know the temptation will be for some to say, man, I'm going to go out and study this for myself even more. I'm going to go listen to this guy, and I'm going to read this guy and that guy and get everything I can. But don't forget, I've been given a word of warning all along. Does not forget that the main point of prophecy is to stir up hope and holiness. It's not an end in itself. And we are not usually, we are not better Christians because we know even more details. Watch out for those who are stirring your fear and not feeding your faith to hope in God alone. Watch out for those who are stirring a fascination, which is really more speculation than it is interpretation of the Word of God. Watch out for those stirring a pursuit of what you want to hear versus what God wants to actually tell you, but He can't because you're so wrapped up in future prophecy that you're missing where He wants you to grow in your life. Not to get more information, but transformation. Watch out for stirring up a thirst for interesting current events happening and related to the end times, but we are not stirred for a thirst for more of Jesus. As we look into heaven, what it's all going to be about, there are many questions that we just do not know. They, they, and, and I think many ways because God hasn't told us. God hasn't, doesn't want that to be the focus. We're, we're in our curiosity. We've got to know everything. And what we gotta, but there's many things that God hasn't told us. And I know there are some that will say verses like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And some are under the impression, therefore, that this whole new way that we will have in heaven when we get to heaven is that literally we will know everything. Will some things become clear when we get there? Yes. Will there be a lot of light bulbs go on? Yes. Although I think there are some things we just will not want to know or not care about because it will just seem irrelevant. So many of the things that we're so into right now, at least some, we're going to get up there in heaven and it's just going to be irrelevant in the presence of God. But to say that we know everything, even the righteous angels don't know everything. First Peter 1 tells us that. Why? In some ways, because they're created beings and not the creator. That's why they don't know everything. And guess what? We are created, not the creator. To somehow think that we will just know everything would mean that we will know everything that God knows. In other words, we're saying in heaven we will be omniscient. That we, the created, have become divine, like God. And no, no, no. No. Just as we don't think that when we get to heaven, we will be omnipotent. Why would we think we're going to be omniscient in heaven? When we get to heaven, we will see God. We will not be God. And for some of you are like, I don't get that, but sounds good. For others of you, you know, you've heard things led you to believe these kind of things. There's things that we should be concerned with other than this. In fact, in chapter 22, verse 3, did you catch this? No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. Who is His servants? Everybody raise your hand. Servants will serve Him. You know... We may think about our encounter with Jesus before entering that new heaven and new earth and encountering Jesus and him saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, that that would be our hope. But does well done mean all done? Will there be a whole new way in heaven 
the way that we think. Because our pictures, sometimes some people's pictures of heaven is all you do is just lounge around forever and do nothing. Yes, it's a place of rest. But what does that mean? For many today, work is a four-letter word. But in heaven, and we just read in verse 3, that there will be no longer any curse. So if there will be no longer any curse, remember the, before the beginning, before, before the beginning of sin, let's put it that way, in the beginning, before sin came, before man's work was cursed, what took place? Adam worked the garden before curse. In the perfectness of God's creation, before it was stained with sin, Adam worked. It was not hard. It was not labor. It was a joy given by God. Could it be that our work for his kingdom, even now, that he asks us to do, is only preparing us to serve him for all eternity? And one of the great ways that we serve God most that we need to embrace is to embrace the wonder of a whole new worship. Worship in eternity will be different in that it will be never-ending eternity of worship up close and personal before God with a great multitude of people from every tribe and tongue around us. It will take our worship to a whole new level, not in some place like a temple or anything like that, because as it says in verse 22, that Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple. Yet for some believers today, our worship in heaven will even be more dramatically different than what they think. Because some think that worship is going to look exactly like it's looked the last 20 to 50 years that they've been a Christian. This is the way worship's supposed to be, the kind of worship music that I like. The worship music that I think is best. This is the kind of worship music that really, I mean, this other stuff is not good, but this is the good stuff. This is the right stuff that should be sung. And they think that's the way it's going to be in heaven, even though there are those who have died in Christ 2,000 years ago who don't know anything about your favorite hymn. Just saying. Not to mention that we read a lot about singing a new song to the Lord. It will be a whole new worship in so many different ways. But will also be different. You know what also will be different in our worship in heaven? Is that there will not be anyone checking their watch wondering when is it going to be over. Or even this worship is boring. People think that. People feel that. People say it. Here's what A.W. Tozer said. God is trying to call us back to that for which he created us, to worship him and enjoy him forever. I can safely say on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God that any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. Can I get a witness? Now, somebody's going somebody's to respond. I, 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 I know the response. Somebody respond back and say, well, it's not heavenly worship that's boring. It's just our earthly worship. You know, I can take it or leave it. I'm not really here for the worship. I'm just for the word. Or someone says, you know, it's, it's, it's the way that we do it. It's not exciting. The songs or the way they're played just don't connect with and get me into worshiping God. It, it, Worship just doesn't move me, either mentally or emotionally. You know what? All that makes sense. If you make worship something that is supposed to happen to you rather than through you. You hear me? When you make worship, everything in worship about you, then you've taken your eyes off of God and God alone. When we make worship time about somebody or something else having to connect us to God when we should have already been connected before we ever walked through those doors, when we should have already been moved 
in our mind, moved in our hearts before an actual word ever comes out of our mouths in praise or prayer because our very life worships God. Because we don't need to wait for something to motivate us to worship the God that we should already be loving with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our soul, with all our strength. We don't need to be motivated for that. We shouldn't if we really love Him with all. We're already motivated. In fact, I believe for some people, worship of God is boring because God is boring to them. They never say that. But they're missing the excitement of a real and vital personal relationship with the awesome God who loves us with an everlasting love and sent His one and only Son to die for us so that we could be connected with Him for all eternity. Can we really say with things in the Psalms, like in Psalm 16, verse 11, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think about that whole new world, that whole new way, and a whole new worship. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But you know what? We don't have to wait for heaven to get a glimpse of what heavenly worship is about. We don't have to wait to then to find joy in His presence. In fact, next Sunday, next Sunday is one of those special uh, services of prayer that we take um, every quarter or so. We take out time to just be in God's presence in prayer specifically. Next, we're calling it a celebration of praise. Praise even in the battle. Praise as our battle. I just want to encourage you to begin preparing now for next week, for Him. Now, we could talk about many other different elements of the new heaven and new earth, what it will be like in eternity, but really only one thing matters. Only, there's only one who makes heaven what heaven is really all about. Going to heaven is really about going to be in the presence of God. You know, when Jesus talked about, I go to prepare a place for you. In John 14, 3, he says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am. Jesus' statement was not just about, hey, I'm going to go make a mansion for you. We gotta, I'm going to prepare a mansion, a place for you. What is most of that sentence talking about that you're seeing up on the screen? In his word, most of it is not about the place. It's, I will come back and take you to be with me. Heaven is about so you can be where I am, Jesus says. In fact, eternal life, Jesus says, is not about a place we go when we die All eternal life is this. In John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing Jesus, not merely a fact, but a faith in a real relationship with Him forever. As it was said earlier in verse 2 and 3, in Revelation 21, heaven is where God dwells and where we dwell with Him. It's not about an occasional visit with God. Once a week up in heaven, we're laying around most of the time, but then we get once a week, we go to a worship service, except it's different because God is there personally. You hear some people talk about the first thing they do when they get to heaven is going to look up loved ones and get reunited with them in heaven. You know, the good news is that I think we will know as we are known and that somehow we will be recognizable to one another. And that will be a joy. But the real joy about heaven is that it's not about us. It's not about our loved ones. It's about the love we should have, the love, the one we love above all at such a high level that no one comes even close and that all our mind, all our heart, all our soul, when we enter heaven, will be focused on Jesus first and foremost. I think of that popular Christian song a number of years ago. I can only imagine what it will be like when I walk by your side 
I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence, or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine when that day comes and I find myself standing in the sun. I can only imagine when all I will do is forever, forever worship you. I can only imagine. Only imagine the wonder of worship in this whole new world. Let's hold on to the hope of heaven that is so much more. I ask the worship team to come. You know, as they come, there are, there are no words that really can fully describe. Uh, we've tried to go through this very quickly. But all in all, there's no words to really describe everything that awaits us in that place that is so much more of heaven. In fact, really, everything we've done is try to use words to describe that which is indescribable. But may our hope be stirred up. A hope not just for that that it is for that day and that time, but to recognize that we are moving towards that. And that we have a hope that awaits us. This should motivate us today. We want to take this time to allow heaven and earth in a sense to come together here for us to prepare for that day by just spending time in worship with the song we're going to sing here unto him let us not focus on anything around us or how it's played or sung or anything but this is about Jesus Lord, set us free from the things that are keeping us so earthbound. Sometimes we, sometimes we talk about being so heavenly minded we're no earthly good, but sometimes we're so earthly minded we're no heavenly good. We're not ready. Help us to see you even now you the holy one move in us move us